Sakrutha Baduria is a software engineer at Salesforce and the managing director at Bay Area Girl Geek Dinners. Sakrutha, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You are the managing director of the Bay Area Girl Geek Dinners. Tell me about these dinners. Sure. Um, so, um, with Girl Geek Dinners, we're trying to um, get more women to stay in tech. And so every event that we have is sponsored by a different company. And each event has um, an hour of networking, an hour of mingling, and uh, one hour of tech talks. So during the tech talk section is when the sponsoring company brings out their female employees to um, talk about what it's like to work at the company and what sort of technologies they're using. You mentioned that the goal of these dinners is to keep women in tech. Are there a lot of women who leave tech? Yeah, we've been um, uh, experiencing a lot of women leaving tech. It's called the pipeline problem. Um, and this has been happening for a few for many years now, um, which is why there's fewer women in tech at senior levels than men. So at the entry level, there is fewer women, but it gets even worse as um, the seniority level increases in a company. Is this like a steady and persistent trend or has it gone up and down? Have the, have the, the pipelines changed over the years? It's changed, but very minimally. Um, there have been times when it's looked a little positive as if the problem's starting to go away, but it's still a problem that many people are trying to solve. What What is it that leads to women uh, departing from tech? To me, because I'm a woman in tech, my I'm going to speak from experience. I think that it's a variety of things. I think um, for me especially, there have been many times uh, in my career that I've been the only woman in the room or... Um, all the way up in my food chain, <laughs> I've reported to mostly men, and no one really likes feeling like a minority, so that could contribute to one reason. Another one is also the environment around you, um, the sort of work environment, because of who's in your surroundings, uh, you tend to feel less comfortable, uh, you tend to uh, feel less welcome. And also a support system in general around when there's not enough um, role models to look up to. That also tends to make people drop out. So I've been trying to figure out the right framing for this week's theme. The theme is women in technology. And I've seen these two contrasting viewpoints. And Mm -hmm. one viewpoint is like there's this prejudice and marginalization or minoritization of women that I've seen in engineering firsthand, and you just described it fairly well, and and it sucks. It makes companies less efficient, it alienates women, it's a societal problem. But the other viewpoint that contrasts with, with that sort of pe- pessimistic or negative perspective is that the, the women that are best suited to talk about this topic, many times they actually don't want to talk about, quote, women in tech, because they want to be recognized for their technical achievements and not the hot-button issue of women in tech. Mm 
So as a journalist, I'm especially as a male journalist, I'm having trouble figuring out exactly how I should approach this issue. I think definitely I also feel like a lot of times when I'm invited to speak, I'm invited to speak not about technical things as much as I am invited to speak about diversity, gender diversity. Um, and even at Girl Geek Dinners, I have to specifically ask companies to please stay away from work-life balance conversations uh, when there's uh, an event that they're sponsoring. And I think it's only because we've reached a stage where when we're talking about not having enough role models, right? You don't want to have your role models be on stage, be extremely qualified, but it's always a woman who's answering the same kind of questions. And I think what I would like to see is it, is ask people questions regardless of their gender. So if you want to understand how people are managing work-life balance, you should be asking the men the same question too, because frankly, I really do want to understand how anyone would be able to manage at a CEO level um, a good balance. Um, but in general, people want to hear these women who are taking the stage now. It, we're seeing more people, women taking the stage. We want to hear them talk more about the, uh, their work than just what it's like for them to strike a balance between work and home. So what what else goes on at these dinners? Give me Give me a better idea of how they encourage women to stay in technology? So the, some of the problems that I stated, right, not having a support system, not seeing enough examples, uh, good examples uh, to identify with. So when you attend a Girl Geek dinner, you see so many women around you who are somewhat in the same situation where they're working in a tech company, perhaps in a similar, similar role, and you go to a company that you find interesting and you see the women speaking um, who, are, who are employees at that company, and they talk about the great technologies that they're using, they talk about best practices if they're product managers or designers, they talk about processes, and you feel inspired as a result of that. You also, during the time that you have to network, you also make great connections. And so when you have all of that, you're more motivated to stay in tech and stay in the kind of job that you're doing or the kind of industry that you're in. How do people sign up for these dinners? So initially it was first come, first serve. But as the demand grew, um, we got feedback that people would like to see uh, everyone get a fair chance to attend because we used to use uh, Eventbrite and the uh, tickets would sell out in minutes. Granted, these events are free, <laughs> but when I say they would sell out, the tickets would be like all gone in a few minutes. Uh, when it's for like 200 people, it would go out in like a minute. And so we got feedback that people want to see a more um, spread out system where they felt like they had a chance to get in without having to be just like clicking refresh on the Eventbrite page waiting for the tickets to open up. So we started to do a lottery system, and that's still been going on. And now we give people a day or two to sign up, and we notify them the day after that they've made it off the lottery. Okay. So is, is, this, is this movement, uh, this kind of advocacy for women by socializing, by, having, by you know, giving women a space to socialize with each other about tech and find support and friendship and so on, 
is this relegated to San Francisco, or do you feel like it's expanding uh, around the country or around the world? So I think people are talking about this around the world. There's now it's a, we live in a global world where when there's an article published here, people read it right away anywhere in the world, right? So when people are reading about diversity issues and advice on what one can do and to improve that in their workplace. And now there's more, uh, it's interesting because I see a great shift when I have male coworkers who have daughters. So they don't want to want their daughters to grow up and say, oh yeah, I don't want to be an engineer because it's a boy's job, you know? (laughs) So you see that shift in everyone you know, everyone wanting to make a difference. And it's not just here for sure. There are a lot more tech companies here. So yes, you will feel it a little, feel the conversation be more predominant here, but that's just like any tech related conversation is a little bit more predominant in the Bay Area. Do do we have any reason to believe that there shouldn't be 50% women in the engineering workforce? No, actually, I I don't have a good reason why there shouldn't be. Um, if in any tech product, right, the consumers are both men, women of all backgrounds, right, of all racial backgrounds and whatnot, I don't see why the workforce that is building those products, uh, why they shouldn't be uh, reflecting the uh, diversity that the consumer base has yeah i was i was looking at some statistics and Mm -hmm. i was seeing some country some companies that were celebrating the the amount the percentage of women they had of of the engineering workforce and like the amounts that they were celebrating were like 13 percent women like if you have 13 percent of your engineering workforce that's a coup you've done a great job and that's kind of appalling like as a society (laughs) right yeah, I think I think maybe um, I think when companies started to share their information, right? People started to realize that the this is an actual problem. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't think I got the sense that companies were celebrating per se, but I think they may have been, um, you know, happy in the fact that they were sharing it. They were sharing the information and they were not hiding it. So that that led to a further conversation. I remember when Google was the first company to share their information, um, everyone I knew was like, oh, my God, the numbers, you know, uh, they're super, they seem really low. And I'm like, that's not just Google. You'll see it everywhere. And it was really nice to see other companies follow suit and share their numbers. So then people got a sense of, they actually started to realize it, even though they probably may not have, necessarily felt it until then they started to realize the problem let's talk more about the root of this which is as you mentioned the the, the it is sometimes called the pipeline mm-hmm. um is is the pipeline does that span from you know elementary school and high school all the way through college and internships and employment or when you're talking about pipeline are you more referring to just the employment sector so with girl geek yes we are um, targeting the more the employment sector, but uh, this is a problem that does start early for sure. It gets worse uh, as people start to work. Um, 
I think the root cause is it depends on where you're where we're speaking, right? Because I learned that uh, I grew up in India, and when I moved here, I learned that the problem was a little bit more severe with uh, attitudes towards whether or not a tech job is a, a viable career for a woman. I think it was a little um, l- less considered to be a viable job for women, for young girls here. At least the girls I knew, they were like, wow, when we were growing up, we didn't really think of it as a potential option. And and I think it was a little bit different in India. And I've noticed in other countries, too, there are some countries where it's a little bit different. But as time goes on, globally, it's a it's a problem that women drop out. And that's and I think that the reasons why people drop out and all over the world are, are very consistent, very similar to each other. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Americans tend to think of America as this place that's like very forward thinking and we're the most progressive or like society. And uh, at least with women in tech, that's certainly not true. So I definitely, I definitely think it's very forward thinking. There's no question about it. I think it's just perception, right? When you are growing up and you see how, uh, how, gender specific the toy section is it's first of all the variety of what you can choose from is larger here than in in any other country i've been to so it is (laughs) to start off with it's like that and then you go to the boys and girls section which to me is crazy toys are toys so um that just perpetuates it it's a little bit more pronounced i think mainly because of the exposure that people tend to get. And when you're thinking about an engineer, traditionally here, especially when someone says software engineer, they thought of an engineer, which meant a man. I don't think it's necessarily related to openness in society. It's just perception, really. Okay. And and so, but what about in in the employment sector? Is is (laughs) the marginalization of women, like once they get into the employment sector, is it it institutional or is it more cultural or... Does does the prejudice or the stereotyping or, uh, I mean, well, I guess you described it more as minoritization, um, but what what could you describe maybe some cases or how this the marginalization of women within software engineering occurs? Um, firstly, I don't think it's like actively trying to marginalize any section of people but I do feel that when we are trying to get more diversity in the workforce we need to adjust the uh, workplace rules and the workplace um, environment to accommodate everyone there are people who need to commute into work so we need to have flexible timings we need to allow people to be able to work from home there are parents uh, or there are people who for some reason can't come into the office and we need to be more flexible with that. Traditionally, I think women have taken the role where they've been the ones to go back home if they have kids in the family. So we need to adjust to that. We need to adjust our parental leave. It's it's sort of a shame how less it is here. Um, and we have, I have friends in Canada and they have a much more um, comfortable parental leave system there. Things like that. You're not going to feel encouraged to come back to work when you've had a child, when you've taken four months off and you think, wow, it's just me who's taken four months off or you only get two weeks off and you feel like, wow, I 
don't feel like I'm paying full attention to my job. And it just seems like at that time, they, you know, it's better to quit and then come back. And then it gets harder and harder to come back because it's a very competitive uh, environment. It's a very competitive workplace, right, when you're working in tech. So you constantly feel like you're trying to prove yourself at every minute of the day. And so that sort of work pressure when you have to balance that with, you know, you're you're ready to have kids or you're getting older and there's this younger and brighter kid who comes along, it breeds a lot of insecurity and you feel extremely, uh, uh, you know, you feel like you should drop out at that point, You like as if there's no other choice. You are a mentor at Hackbright Academy. What is Hackbright Academy? So I'm, I was mentoring at one point, not, not anymore, uh, just because of my timings now. But Hackbright is um, a 10-week bootcamp boot for women, at the end of which they learn Python, they build projects, and then they interview for companies, uh, major tech companies or startups. Um, and they're located in San Francisco at the moment. So that it's a great program for women who already have jobs, but they want to make a shift into tech. What do you think of these coding boot camps? I think they're great, honestly, as long as they have good industry connections as well, because it's the same thing like graduating from college right, with a computer science degree. If you're, you go to a great college and they're teaching you these fantastic concepts, but they're not preparing you for industry, then there's that huge disconnect because at the end of the day, every you need to be prepared for a job. So if you're not being coached in interview skills and you're not being um, set on set on a platform where you have access to companies, then no matter what you learn at the end of a ten week bootcamp or at the end of a four year program, it's not it's not a complete learning experience. Yeah, so software engineering daily is planning a week of shows about coding boot camps because. We, we think that mm-hmm. these boot camps are actually excellent education models for the future. How, how does the mm-hmm. experience of a coding boot camp student compare to the experience of an engineering student in college? So I think, firstly, the whole engineering uh, curriculum needs, needs a little bit of adjustment uh, because we learn a lot of theoretical concepts, which is great, but... I don't know how much of that you end up actually using when you're working because you're mostly actually coding or you're designing. You're never um, really thinking from that high level of a theoretical concept, which is what boot camps don't have the time to offer. They've actually sized down their curriculum to be specifically what they think someone's going to do in their job and what they're going to be asked in their interview. Um, So the... So there's that. There's a lot of pressure on a person with the, who's gone through a boot camp because um, people are sort of uh, a little bit more cautious of your uh, abilities when they interview you. Because traditionally, companies have always hired people with computer science backgrounds or engineering backgrounds. So they're taking a chance. They think that they're taking a chance on someone from a boot camp. I'm glad to see that, that perception changing, though. A lot of companies are starting to hire people with non-traditional backgrounds. So this 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 dichotomy between theory and practice, you know, what's what seems weird to me is that if you learn the practice, 
doesn't the theory kind of fall out from that? I mean, if you learn the theory, you don't automatically get practice. But if you do the practice, in my experience, the theory kind of seems to fall out of it a little bit. But I don't know. Do you agree with that? Um, I think it's how it's taught, really. Like, some of the concepts that I learned, I'm probably never going to need to use because there's a lot that's already been done. You're never building something completely from scratch. You're reusing tools that already exist. So, I mean, while it's great that I know conceptually what was what was the thought process behind building those tools, I'm never going to have to do it. It makes no sense. Um, again, do, I don't... Do you, do you feel any frustration with, with the fact that college was so expensive and yet we learned all these things? Because, like, I mean, I say computer science and I... You know, I kind of am a little resentful about the amount of money that you have to spend uh, relative to what you actually get out of it. Um, honestly, I've never thought of it like that. I had, I also think it's a good uh, social experience, so maybe that's why I didn't think of it like that. But 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 the boot camps are also a good social experience, and those are what like eight grand. For the same same span of time that takes like 20 grand for college? Yeah, for sure. But it's a shorter period of time. It's a great social experience, but it's for a shorter period of time. So I, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I don't, I haven't felt that way actually. So, okay. Well, so I, I did read a quote from you where you said that after college, there was a period where you were quote, a little out of date with your skill set. Why is it that college prepares us in a way where our skills are outdated despite having just spent four years earning a degree? I think I think what happens is that you're not necessarily... Okay, so things change in the software industry so quickly. Like one minute we have a new language and then the next minute it's a different language that's new, right? Um, of course, unless you're working in a really old company that's still using Java and they have so much code in Java that they're not going to translate anytime soon. But when you get out, you realize that, oh my gosh, there's all these other new things that have been happening in the meantime. And you're like, whatever, I'm not going to need it right away, so it's fine. But (laughs) as you start working, you sort of um, are disconnecting yourself from what's new and fresh in the industry even more because you're just working uh, with um, blinders on and what you're doing and you're not improving your skills in other areas. Um, Are coding boot camps able to offer an up-to-date curriculum? I, I think that they do, but it's the same thing after you are done and you start working. You have to complete, co- consistently be completely uh, updating yourself, at least in awareness level, and which is why meetup groups are great, where you go to a meetup group and people are talking about these latest technologies. And actually, you're seeing people do demos in something they've built um, using these new technologies or frameworks or languages or whatever. So for me, the way I've been staying in touch is either following meetup groups or following journals. Um, but again, it's not, it's, it's a hard one. It's really, really hard to stay up to date consistently, especially if you're not doing a project in that language. And then you have to like learn it all of a sudden if you want to change jobs and that they're only using Swift or something. 
Tell me more about what you did as a mentor at Hackbright. How did you teach people to code? So the good thing is that the program does a great job in teaching people. That's not something that a mentor needs to do at the end of the day because they're getting a good learning experience. I think what I've experienced that the mentees really want to see is they want to meet with people who are in industry and they decide on what project they want to build. They want to hear from someone who's already working to give them perspective on whether or not that project is a good idea, whether it would be um, a good learning experience, whether it's even possible to complete that giant plan that they have in like a few weeks. So as they're building their project, they they have someone who's in industry to talk about, uh, talk to about their project. So that's mainly what you end up uh, providing to them, that sort of support and constant feedback uh, about how they're building their project. And also when it comes time to interviews, uh, you tend to be the person who can provide that practice. They do have interview skills training in their uh, boot camp, but it's, a, it's like additional practice for them to have a mentor ask them questions and give them a real-life interview experience. I think there's this back and forth in our, in our society right now about should everyone learn to code? Like, is coding a basic thing that you need to know, like English or biology or algebra... Um, and you see some pushback from, from some people who are like, I don't want to learn to code. I don't think people should have to learn to code. Uh, and then also some people are saying like, there are people out there who just are not born to code. Um, what's your take on this? Should people, should everybody know how to code? Is coding like a new literacy? Hmm. I feel like everyone needs to know how to use software for sure. Um, I don't feel comfortable with forcing people. And I understand when now people are feeling like, oh, their kids are in middle school, they really have to learn it or else they're not going to pick it up later. I I, I don't know how I feel about the pressure that these kids are going to potentially feel um, when I have friends who are going to have kids. <laughs> and now they're in this movement where everyone needs to learn how to code, but then there's all this pressure on their child to learn how to do it. I feel like everyone needs to use technology and know how to do it. That's number one. And then next is they need to know what goes into it if they were to learn. They need to know where to find these resources if they were interested in learning. I do think that for me, it helped me that uh, in school I was exposed to it very, very early on. And um, I was one of the few out of my friends in school who actually had a computer at home. So it was very easy for me to feel comfortable with email and uh, and any other technology that came along later because it didn't feel like a scary thing. Um, and then that sort of led me to want to be working in tech. So it came gradually. Um, I don't believe that anyone's not born to do anything because for me, I think... I've never really felt like I was born with any sort of special skill to do anything. And I've had to learn it. And it's been hard for anything that I've done. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a weird thing, this uh, this idea in our, in our culture that there are certain segments of our population that are preternaturally 
better or more well suited to do engineering or quantitative stuff. Like you, you see this narrative sometimes around, oh, uh, you know, men are just more well built to do quantitative stuff, and there's frankly no way that we would have evidence that that would be true or that would be false because in any case women are led away from the engineering disciplines so we have no idea if they're preternaturally better at doing one thing or the other because we haven't a b tested it we haven't given them sort of equal uh access to uh to the same resources and opportunities and encouragement as as men and uh, anyway that's a tangent from my previous point but uh Something I've been thinking about during this week. Um. So, so I don't. I, I, I mean, when we were growing up, when I was my sister and I were growing up, we used to talk about, oh, what talents do we have? And we watched a movie where uh, I don't remember the exact name of the movie, but it was something about if you have a talent, it tends to limit you because there's a limit to talent, but there's no limit to hard work. So. Really, I don't think that anyone should grow up with this or anyone should continue to feel this that, oh, I don't have it in me, so that's why I can't do it. Because for me, like, I've seen my sister's kids growing up and for them even learning how to walk was hard. So <laughs> I think you can't be born with this natural ability and then rely on that forever. No, it's not possible. So you have to learn anything in the same way with coding. I don't think these things, yes, some things can come slightly easier to others, maybe because they're exposed to it more, but I don't think anyone's born with it. Personally, I don't think so. So, so let's talk some about your actual work at mm-hmm. uh, Salesforce. What do you do at Salesforce? So I'm a software engineer in quality, which means that um, a lot of the code that I write is contributes to the test automation, um, not just the code that's building the product, but also um, I also work on, uh, mainly work on actually the automation code uh, for the product. So, yeah. And so what's your software stack? What code do you write? Uh, it's all Java at the moment. Um, at Salesforce, there's a lot of Java. Uh, there are some acquisitions uh, that use Python and Ruby on Rails, but uh, I work on the uh, Salesforce platform, which is why it's all in Java. So when you're talking about quality assurance, do you mm-hmm. build suites of tests that run during continuous integration, or are these uh, more like unit tests, or what types of testing are you doing? So there's, a, there's different kinds of testing. There's uh, functional testing. Um, and yes, if I do do the, the development code, then I will add unit tests. So because when I'm in situations where I'm not the person who wrote the feature, I will add functional tests, not unit tests. And there's security testing that needs to be done that also should be automated. And there's performance testing also that should be automated. No one should be manually clicking and checking whether things work or not. So all of these test suites for, like you said, continuous integration, it's all automated. What's an example of a security test? Oh, yeah, that you can't 
get the database information when you type into the input box on a web page, you shouldn't be able to get a pop-up that says, hi, this is what's in the database. So that's a security test. Cross-site scripting, things like that. Are, are the biggest challenges imagining the problems that could occur in quality, or are they more about actually implementing the tests that uh, check against those uh, potential quality problems? No, I think it's just deciding how to build a feature, right? How do you build a feature so that it's a quality product? Um, and then from the start, architecting it so that you take into consideration how a user is going to use it. And then you think about how one can test it so that the user has the right experience. You have to work, the team has to work together to come up with the whole proposal and a plan on how, like I said, the architecting starts, not just about how it, the feature is going to be, but how how good qual how, how good the quality is going to be of the product. What keeps you in quality assurance uh, rather than moving to other areas? Do you like do you ever have any interest in uh, moving into uh, I don't know feature development or whatever the other um, areas or, or software titles are at Salesforce? So at Salesforce, there's no like clear distinction. You're not only doing writing code for tests and you're not only writing code for features. You're always doing a bit of both. Okay. So that's what keeps me in because it's never doing just one thing. You're having to do both. Um, most companies that have a well-running uh, product that's good quality need to do it like this where they have yes they do have people who write the feature code and they do have people who write the automated tests but then you can't test your own code um, effectively so there needs to be a second pair of eyes on your code so people need to take turns i read a book about salesforce called mm -hmm. behind the cloud it was uh, a you know co-wrote by mark benioff who's the ceo and he has an extremely distinct vision for what he wants his company to be, are there any idiosyncrasies of Salesforce that stick out to you when you think about the company? Hmm. I think for me, right, the first thing I noticed when I started working at Salesforce was how important uh, the employees' voices are. They care a lot about getting feedback. Constantly, they're always asking what they can do better. Um, the next is, I think, staying up to date with what's current, what current trends are in the industry, um, which a lot of companies tend to fall behind on because they have this roadmap and they have this plan for what their next two years or five years is going to be, and they don't adjust that plan when there's, new uh, tools or new trends in the industry. So I definitely think that adjusting to that is what makes Salesforce the kind of company that it is. Um, very innovative. Um, is there anything specific about the, about the culture? Because, I mean, the, I've, I've watched some of these talks that occur at Dreamforce. Mm -hmm. Dreamforce mm -hmm. is this giant conference that shuts down 
downtown San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've tried to, I've tried to find parking during during Dreamforce. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, what is it? How is Dreamforce like representative of the culture? <laughs> so I think at Dreamforce, right, we're all all employees are encouraged to do booth duty or volunteer in some way or another if they're not already speaking at the conference, right? So that the the kind of excitement level that people have to meet the customers and do booth duty and uh, any other volunteering work, I, I think that's really fascinating to see how many people want to be part of Dreamforce and represent Salesforce. The pride that people have to wear a Salesforce t-shirt, it's really interesting to me to see. Um, <laughs> and Dreamforce, I think the the <laughs> there's so much that goes on at Dreamforce and people do end up talking about the craziness and the uh, traffic and whatnot, but I I think it's just sheer numbers. People really, really want to attend this conference and it caters to everyone who uses Salesforce and wants to use Salesforce. There's so many on on uh, uh, on-site trainings that they even have because um, when whenever there's a new feature announced, they want people to use it right away. So they have trainings of that sort as well. So it's it's definitely a crazy experience when you go. There's a lot of people. It's like a movement like you said. <laughs> so, so speaking of which, tell me more about the Salesforce product and how you write tests to emulate your users. So in general, I can tell you how one should write. I think when you size down a feature to what you're going to be building piece by piece, you need to think about when you're done building that little piece. So when you look at the overall feature, then you can evaluate whether or not you're happy with the overall quality. When you discuss the architecture, you need to, like I said, discuss how potentially a user would use it. And that's something that when you have a product manager who is conveying the requirements based on customer requests, you can get a good idea of what the customer's experience should be because of what they're asking for and what you think would be an additional uh, good add-on to that, right? What additional features you could add to make it a better experience. And based on that, when you size it down, you tend to write functional tests, which will make sure that the piece that you just worked on is working correctly and integrates well with other systems. The good thing at Salesforce is because there's a lot of teams that, sort of rely on each other's code to work correctly. We have these meetings where we present our feature before the release to everybody within your cloud and they give you feedback on whether or not, you know, they think that it would work out well or what sort of dependency issues it may have and they'd ask you questions like, have you thought about this and that? And basic architectural discussions that happen just beyond the scope of your team as well. So that's nice. So tell me more about the product. How do sales teams use Salesforce? So I think with Salesforce, it's a really uh, easy and convenient tool to use when you're trying to keep track of all your sales-related data, like opportunities and accounts and potential leads. 
that could lead to customers <laughs> ultimately um there's a lot of uh, uh customization that you can do with salesforce that would require a little bit of coding expertise but no longer needed because of the uh easily accessible components that were announced at dreamforce this year um so it's very programmatic on one side and it's also very easy to use because you can customize it to your own needs okay interesting so let's get back to our discussion of women in tech i'd like to talk some about the future and how we move towards a future how long do you think it'll be before we have 50% of the engineering workforce as women oh wow um so i see that there are efforts being made a lot of efforts being made to introduce young girls uh, and bring them get their get them wanting to get into tech so that's sort of the next generation right and hopefully by the time it's the next generation we'll be closer to 50% just because of all these efforts and because to me i think that if we're continuing to work on um encouraging women to stay in tech then these young girls who get into tech when they do will have a good number of role models to look up to you want to be working in an environment where you see where you can see yourself further on right you can see yourself growing and if you can't picture yourself you know 10 years later or 15 years later if you can't see someone that represents what you think you're going to look like it's a really hard situation to be in So Hackbred Academy is the coding boot camp that we discussed earlier. Why is mm-hmm. Hackbred Academy all women? I think that their intent was to cater to women and to help women get into tech when they aren't already in tech. And so it to me from what I know of why they're doing it is just to get when they're trying to target um specifically uh women to get into tech they're just going to fill their class with women <laughs> so they can change the ratio is there any psychological element that makes it easier to learn in in an environment you know for, for these for these women where they're just completely surrounded by women like is there um is there any comfort that comes with that i'm sure there is i mean like i said there's no one really likes to be a minority so it's got to be nice to be <laughs> in a class full of women but i don't i don't i'm i don't know because i've not been in that situation ever to be uh, i've never been in a situation in a classroom where there's all women so i don't really know if people really pay attention to that as much and then analyze if that worked out for them better but i i'm sure it's got to be great to not be a minority so What is Salesforce's approach to improving the the state of of women in tech? So, Salesforce is also focusing on uh uh advancing and retaining and attracting. So, keeping those three things in mind, right? Getting young girls interested and advancing the uh women who are already at salesforce and retaining them those are the three main things that salesforce is focusing on through various programs what can engineers do to 
improve the state of women in tech? Like whether you're a man or a woman, you can do to to improve the situation. I think be more mindful of your surroundings and who's in the surroundings. Um, I definitely wish more people would be mentors. You don't need to go through a formal program to be a mentor of someone. If you see someone who has potential and they're not quite there yet, you should definitely go and help them out and help them figure out how to get to the next level um, by advising them and um, giving them the appropriate feedback, especially if you work with the person. I myself have had the chance to do that. It's very, it's a two-way street. It's very rewarding. You tend to learn much more when you mentor someone else too. even if it's something that you, that is extremely technical that you're helping them out with, you tend to learn much more about what you're helping them out with that you probably didn't know enough about earlier. So I definitely want to see more of that, more of people helping people. Because um, I think that goes a really long way. Great. Well, Sukrutha Baruria, thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks.